Welcome to Kindreds, a podcast for soul sisters. I'm Ashley Peterson. And I'm Katie Zay. We're kindred spirits talking all things faith, feminism, and friendship from our homes in the South. Hey, Ashley. Hey, Katie. How are you? Blah. Blah. <laughs> well, we'll get into that in a second, I guess. <laughs> just keeping it real. <laughs> yeah, keeping it real. And we just want to thank our audience for hanging in there as we took some time to rest and regroup in August. We hope you're all able to do the same. It was more like, can we do this this Friday? I don't think so. Let's push it back. Can we do it this Friday? No. (laughs) Rinse, repeat. (laughs) Because as you said, rest, it's like, I don't think rest is the best word. Um, No. It's been, it's been really tough. And I'll just say, we love kindreds. This is like a space where we go to kind of have fun, retreat, focus on something else besides our day jobs. But our day jobs yeah. have been kicking our butts. It has been so rough. It's been yeah. so overwhelming. So please just fund abortion, y'all, especially abortion funds in Texas. I, I don't think there's more for us to say, but it's it's been rough. And, and please hold us in prayer because we need all the prayers that we can get. Yeah. Yeah. And I would like to remind everyone, you know, for the entire time that we've been recording Kindreds, you and I have been working in the field of faith-based reproductive health rights and justice and specifically focusing on abortion access for most of that time. I've been in this work seven years now, almost. How long has it been for you? I think I counted 14 years in full-time reproductive work. Wow. And it's only gotten harder. I mean, I Speaking for myself, it's only gotten harder. Mm -hmm. For sure. (laughs) Yeah. And as you were saying, Kindreds is a respite for us. It is a comfort, and I'm so grateful for it. But, um, yeah, if we're being honest, we're tired. Our colleagues, our communities are tired. And if you're not up to speed on what's happening with abortion access in our country, please do some reading. All of the major news outlets are covering it, but we can put links to some of the things we recommend in the show mm-hmm. notes. You can always mm-hmm. find good current information on rewirenews.org. And you can also go back and listen to our old episodes on abortion if you want to hear more about our perspectives on it and a faith perspective on it. And yes, please donate to abortion funds for real, especially in the South. Yes, that's that's the thing that we can all actually do is... Fund the people who've been preparing for this moment. You don't need to go start your own thing. Just fund the people who are already doing the work. Yep. And join the people who are already doing the work. Yes. You know, there are plenty of groups you can connect to. Uh, We talked about in our last episode, the National Council for Jewish Women. This is a big piece of their work and you can join them. You can join RCRC. There's a lot happening already that has been going on for a long time. So yeah, there's definitely ways to put the feelings and the the anxiety and the fear into action. Mm -hmm. So should we get into our main conversation for today? Let's do it. Yeah, let's do it. Yeah. So in our last episode, our friend Sheila Katz, the CEO of the National Council of Jewish Women, joined us to talk about religious freedom, reproductive rights, and abortion access, and anti-Semitism. And if you have not listened to that episode yet, please go back. It's very relevant, even more relevant now than it was a month, two months ago when we released it. It was such a fun conversation, and 
Sheila is really a joy to talk to. We told her after the show she should start her own podcast. Uh-huh, <laughs> I could listen definitely. to her talk all day, and I always learn so much from her. <laughs> so I'm curious, Katie, what was your biggest takeaway from our conversation with Sheila? It was such a good talk. I love talking to Sheila. She's such a lovely human being and such mm-hmm. a fierce advocate and leader and so relatable. Mm-hmm. I just mm-hmm. adore her. Um and I love how she specifically went through some of the differences, theological and cultural, around how Judaism understands life and personhood, because that really reiterated for me just how Christian dominant our society is, like even yeah. in how we celebrate certain milestones. Um, and I thought of this specifically when I think she brought up the topic of baby showers. Yeah, and she did. I just recently went to one because our one of our patrons, Katie, just had her baby. Um, so we're excited. Congratulations, Congratulations, Katie. But I was, I was out of her baby shower, which was before she had a baby. And that's typically like in my circles, at least, and probably in yours, when people have baby showers is, you know, before, before the birth. And it wasn't until I was good colleagues, um, with a friend who was Jewish that I understood that that's really culturally specific and that they don't Mm -hmm. typically do baby showers until baby is born and everything goes well. Um, so it's just one of those, not even small things. It's actually a pretty significant tradition that we do. That's very much informed by, by Christianity, or at the very least, not sensitive to the particular beliefs of Jewish communities. So that one was something that kind of struck me in a new way. Um, Mm. I'm curious, what about you? What did you learn from our conversation? You are so right. Even the parts of our culture that we consider secular or not influenced by religion at all are heavily influenced by Christian tradition. And we'll get into that, why that is later in the conversation. But I was struck by the statistic that we shared last episode that over 70% of Americans identify as Christian. And just what that means about how much space Christianity takes up in the U.S. and how much power Christians really do have, whether they acknowledge that power or not. And I really didn't understand that so many Americans are Christian. And I want to dig more into that, too, uh, later in the conversation. But what really hit home for me is that as members of this very dominant religion, we, Christians, are the ones with the responsibility to make sure that this country is safe and accepting and welcoming of everyone. It shouldn't fall on Jews, 2% of the population, or any member of a minority religion, to have to constantly sound the alarm and remind us that right now they're not safe everywhere. They're not included everywhere. So um, let's get into this. We In this episode, we are going to explore the role that Christians play. We originally thought we were going to talk more about anti-Semitism, but as, the, as we started sketching out our outline, we realized that we, we really need to ground ourselves in what is Christian supremacy or Christian hegemony. And so we're really going to spend uh, probably the bulk of the conversation on that and how anti-Judaism comes from that, is enabled by that. But we're going to talk about how we can address this in ourselves and in our congregations and our communities. And this is like a huge, complex topic that goes back centuries, especially anti-Semitism. So we'll be focusing on contemporary Christianity and kind of grounding this in some of our experiences. So I think a good place to start, Katie, if you're up for it, is the concept of Christian hegemony. What is that? 
Isn't hegemony such a good word? It is a great word. I like to say it. <laughs> yeah. And I think, too, just going back, that we're very much included in this. I think we're on yes. a journey of examining what this means for, for us. Just like anytime you're part of a dominant group, whether that's being a mm-hmm. white person or being a man, <laughs> you know, it's mm-hmm. ongoing work. So this is definitely stuff that we're learning, too. We're, we're learning alongside you. Okay. So yes. Christian hegemony is basically Christian dominance. So that's mm-hmm. Christian values practices, institutions are asserted at every part of our society, like culturally, socially, institutionally, over and against those of Mm -hmm. minority religions or for people who don't identify with a religion at all. And it's it's almost hard to describe it because it's so pervasive and it touches everything, you know, similar to systemic racism and sexism and heterosexism, how those operate is very much the same thing. So it's, if you're part of the dominant group, it can almost be hard to see it, which is why we're going to get into the nitty gritty because it seems very abstract. But I know that if we get into like what it looks like and how it shows yeah. up, it's going to make a lot more sense. So why don't you talk to talk about what it was like growing up in Mississippi? Because I imagine oh. there's a lot of Christian hegemony there. <laughs> oh, yeah. Um, understatement of the year. Or just in the U.S. in general, especially in the South, I would say. Yeah. 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 Preparing for this episode, I, I was thinking about some of the ways that I've seen Christian hegemony is sort of woven into the culture of a workplace, especially. Mm -hmm. I have so many examples of this, but I'll focus on one. So when I was a brand new dietitian, I have talked about this on the show before. I was working for a state university in a position that was funded by the federal food stamp program. So there was no question that we were all government employees paid for by tax dollars. And on the surface, You know, we give a lot of lip service to the idea that uh, we're inclusive, the workplace doesn't discriminate, and there wasn't really supposed to be any religion in the workplace. But I'm sure you can see where this is going. (laughs) It was not uncommon for people to talk about church at work and have religious stuff in their cubicles, which fine, you know, everyone has a right to do that. But then there would be a lot of assumptions, like folks would ask straight up, where do you go to church? You know, as though it was a given that you went to church. And we had an office Christmas party every year that was explicitly Christian with Christian carols and, you know, signs, Jesus is the reason for the season and stuff. Oh, whoa. That's hardcore. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Our secretary who was at the, like, front desk where people greeted uh, was a a devout practicing Christian and had a lot of this stuff up in her desk. And so the, the, the case could be made that that wasn't appropriate, but... Those things were, I was really used to that because that was just how I, that was how I grew up. And so I didn't think a whole lot about it, but over time I started noticing smaller things that rubbed me the wrong way. Like our boss would ask us to bow our heads and say grace before meals at like a work meeting. And then this one, this one very glaring thing happened that really hit home for me. Like, oh, we're crossing lines here. So I was at a statewide meeting, over 100 people. It was mandatory. And one of my, one of the like regional administrators got up and delivered a prayer that was very patriarchal, very evangelical, and using a lot of that kind of language. And I was sitting there in the pews, in the pews, see? In the pews. <laughs> in the pews. No, I was sitting at a at a table <laughs> thinking, I didn't consent to this. 
this is making me really uncomfortable. This person is not my preacher. This is very much not my denominational style. This is not how I participate. Um, And I, you know, I didn't sign up for this and this is wrong. And I can only imagine what it was like to be. So if there were 100 people in that room, certainly there were people who weren't Christian, you know, so I can't imagine what they were feeling in that moment. So a few weeks later, an employee survey, an anonymous survey went around about employee satisfaction. And I wrote all about that experience and how it felt like it was starting to become um, that Christianity was starting to really permeate this workplace culture. And I'm sure I wasn't the only one because not long after that, the overt religious stuff at work stopped. So that's a win. <laughs> that's a total but Katie, win. Have, yeah. Have you experienced things like this? Oh, yeah. I'm just so glad that you spoke up. And even just thinking, I feel like there's something specific about prayer that's mm-hmm. offensive because you are invoking the divine yes. on behalf of other people. Yes. And asking yes. for certain things. I, I'm really uncomfortable yes. with kind of communal prayer in general. So yeah, even I as someone too. who grew up in Christianity, I personally don't like being forced to pray communally at all. Like it makes me yep. uncomfortable. And even what you were saying about the style of prayer is not even was not even inclusive of everybody who would identify as Christian. Right. 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 That language. So I just can imagine how much more uncomfortable and exclusionary it would feel if that's not anywhere close to your tradition. To have that done to you or being subjected to, to it, not being able to opt yes. out. It's beyond uncomfortable. It's really, it's doing harm. It's really, really yep. doing harm. And I was even thinking, I wasn't prepared to say this, but even as a child, I didn't grow up going to church, so we didn't pray. And I remember going to like a day camp as a four or five-year-old and being forced mm-hmm. to pray before we would eat our cereal. And I was like, I had no concept of what was going mm. on. And I'm pretty sure that my parents weren't asked if that was okay. You know, so that sort of like religious training that happens informally, there was so much of that that I was exposed to growing up in Georgia, very similar to what mm-hmm. you were describing. And I was thinking about how normalized Christian prayer was at every public event that I went to as a kid. Before we would play a basketball game, our team would would pray in the locker room. Before any community meal, there was Christian prayer. And it was always Dear Heavenly Father, right? Like Always. Always, <laughs> always. So boring. Y'all really got to come up with some new language for this. There's so many yeah. ways to talk to the divine that are inclusive. It's so lazy to use that kind of language. Agreed. There's so many options available. Anyway, I also was thinking about how my school, which was not officially a Christian school, students would write Christian scriptures on the whiteboards of classrooms before class and stuff like that. And we even had a Christian evangelist come to health class to talk about the dangers of premarital sex. Ah, ah. (laughs) That was our sex ed, (laughs) you know, not biased at all. Yeah. Do you remember uh, uh, an episode that we did when we first started, when I talked about the power team coming to our school and ripping phone books for Jesus or whatever? I still never... (laughs) Those full yeah, the, school assemblies yep. where everybody went. Public we, school. Public school. That's fascinating. I was It was yeah. a private school, but not a Christian school. And we had similar kinds of things where there would be a motivational speaker who was basically there to evangelize. And there was never yeah. – I'm sure people were upset about it, but they never did anything about it. So yeah. that Christian culture was all over the place. And I even think about the dance school that I grew up in. The ballet teacher was a very devout evangelical Christian and would choreograph all of her dances to contemporary Christian music. <gasps> 
<laughs> you know, just it was just everywhere. Yeah. And I didn't really think of it critically at the time at all because, like you said, it's just so normal. But then just recently I reconnected with a high school classmate who was one of just a few Jewish families in our school and how he and I talked about what that experience was like for lots of different reasons. It wasn't just that it was Christian dominant. It was white and privileged and all yeah. of those things. But but specifically to think about like what that must have felt like for him and his and his siblings. And I was actually thinking, like, I give my music teacher a little bit of credit because we'd always do this holiday performance. And she always made sure there was like at least one Hanukkah song. And that was my only real exposure to it other than, did you ever read the Babysitter's Club Little Sister books? Yes. There was one where she goes to her friend's house who's Jewish and they do like a kind oh. of like interfaith thing where one goes to Hanukkah and the other one comes for Christmas. And like, that was really the only That's education cool. I got as a kid about about Judaism. Like, I didn't really know anything about it. But beyond that, I was thinking really problematically about how it went beyond just the hegemony and into supremacy because this family, or it might've been, I can't remember if it was this particular family, the guy I was talking to or someone that he knew, but they were not allowed to join the, like this very exclusive country club because they were Jewish. Like they were denied membership. And I remember even as a child being like, what? Like it made no sense to me at all. I could not figure out why someone's, where somebody went to do religious services would influence whether or not they would be accepted socially. I mean, I just was so naive. But even as a child, I remember thinking, this is so wrong that someone's tradition would exclude them from entrance and entrance into a community of any kind. But we know these these sorts of things happen all the time in big and small ways. You know, now that we're talking about this, I am realizing that I never knew a Jewish person before I was well into adulthood. And I don't know if there were any Jewish people at my school or in my community growing up. It's very likely that if there were, they absolutely were not open about it, you Mm -hmm. know? And I have a friend now, I was thinking about this, who um, until recently lived in a rural town in Mississippi. And she was working for a public school there. And she specifically hid the fact that she was Jewish because Mm -hmm. it was not safe for her to be openly Jewish in that town. And that is literally the definition of erasure, you know? Wow. Yeah. And what all of this is teaching me is that because Christianity is just so dominant in our country, like I said earlier, Christians, we are the ones with the responsibility to be extra vigilant to make sure that our communities and our workplaces and our secular spaces, our ostensibly secular spaces, are inclusive of everyone. We are the ones with the numbers. We are the ones with the voice. And that means we have the power. We have to pay attention to things like what holidays we're emphasizing and how and what Christian practices we might be pushing on to other people. I can't imagine what it must feel like for a Jewish or Muslim person to go to work for a state institution and be led in a Christian prayer. And I know Sheila talked about this a bit on our last episode, just things like having to use personal time for Jewish holidays when your Christian coworkers get all their holidays off in addition to their personal time mm-hmm. or having your first day of school. I think she talked about a university that planned their first day of classes for um, the middle of a high holiday and wouldn't change it. And it's very unfair and it's offensive. And these things on their face, I think this is what the point that I like that I hope we're getting across is these things on their face are not anti-Semitic, 
But when you start to put these small acts of erasure into a bigger context, you can see how this contributes to a larger culture where anti-Judaism, anti-Semitism is tolerated, it can thrive, and it's even encouraged. Does that make sense? Yeah, it's, it's looking at that full spectrum, just like yeah. when we talk about microaggressions of racism, right, all the way yes. to the most heinous racist, racist acts. It's all along a spectrum, and so kind of looking at how this can show up in these very insidious ways that seem minor, but that contribute to exactly what you said, a culture where anti-Semitism can thrive right now, which is what which is what Sheila was talking about. And I yeah. think all of these things, the the erasure, the not honoring holidays or time off, um, it says your religion is not important to us, mm-hmm. you know, or, or that it's wrong and that it doesn't belong here, you know. And so I was thinking about this specifically and how this shows up in Christianity in our Christian mm-hmm. practices. And have you ever heard the term Pharisees used in a pejorative way? Yes, I have. It was said all the time in my church all the in time. a pejorative way. Yes. Yeah. And I'm embarrassed to say I remember specifically in my first, it might have been my first day or first week of college in a religion class using Pharisee in that way and feeling quite proud of myself that I knew this lingo, you know? Yeah. Um, it's common in evangelical churches, at least when I, the one I grew up in, to talk about Pharisees just like as hypocrites. Yes. Right? That's what, yes. It, that's what it's, that's how it's interpreted. And when, we, mm-hmm. when in reality, they were an ancient sect of Jewish people, <laughs> mm. which some people have hypothesized that Jesus was most likely part of or associated mm. with because he encounters them so much in the stories and the gospels. He's constantly talking to them. Um, and he challenges them often on issues of interpretation with Jewish law. But I think people have taken that to mean like Jesus was the right one and the Pharisees were wrong rather yeah. than they were in a debate about how law should be interpreted. And um, so you'll hear Christians often say that Pharisees were obsessed with legality and Jesus was all about love, which is such a gross oversimplica- oversimplification. That's the framing. Yeah, that's the yeah. framing I'm familiar with. Yeah, yeah. And because of that interpretation of the who the Pharisees were in the Gospels, how they were talked about, which also has some anti-Judaism in there, right? Like yeah. if we look at the writers of the Gospels, especially the Gospel of Matthew, it's very anti-Jewish. Um, and because most people sitting in the pews haven't had a religious education in Judaism at all, mm-hmm. much less ancient Judaism... Me. Hi. Yeah. I mean, (laughs) yeah. Right. Like, that's just not part of our culture to teach these things. And so it's become like part of our Christian vernacular, at least in certain circles, to talk about Pharisees as as hypocrites. Mm -hmm. And I was looking this up because I was really curious. And so when Pete Buttigieg was running for president, he actually referred to Mike Pence as a Pharisee in an interview. I did not know this happened. <laughs> I didn't either until I looked it up, um, which also says something, right? Like that that wouldn't yeah. have made news worthy of, of me seeing it, um, which speaks to like what she, Sheila was sharing. It's like progressive people even and organizations are just as culpable of reinforcing Christian dominance in our practices and our messages. Yep. And there was this great response to this by um, a rabbi named Jeffrey Salkin, and he wrote for Religion News Service. I'm just going to I'm just going to read it because I think it's really Good. He says, first, I do not believe that Pete Buttigieg has an anti-Semitic bone in his body. But what is amazing to me, and perhaps to you, is how easily your everyday average liberal person imbibes the themes of anti-Judaism without even realizing it. 
Notice that I did not say anti-Semitism. Rather, it's anti-Judaism, a subtle but pernicious opposition to Judaism itself as a religious and cultural system. Now, those who traffic in anti-Judaism would never take up torches against the Jews. They would never harm a Jew. Many of them have Jewish friends and relatives. But their subtle and unexamined religious perceptions, Judaism as a religion of law versus Christianity as a religion of love, Judaism as a separatist faith, Judaism as a religion of rules rather than of the spirit, are part of the lens through which they view the world. The takeaway here, anti-Judaism is so ingrained in the way that so many people think that it has become unconscious. I felt like that was so good. Yes, that is so good and so important. And clearly I have my own work to do around this (laughs) because as you were talking, I realized I've heard Pharisee used that way. And I'm sure, like you, I said it myself at some point because it is so common and it does sound like a good um, academic uh, religious yeah. word that like, you know, to, you know to use something. it feels. Yes, you know something. <laughs> and I think of the verse from Matthew, you referenced Matthew, about um, not being like the hypocrite who prays on the street corner or something like that, who prays out loud. And that was one that I heard a lot. And I don't know if the verse says Pharisee or says hypocrite, but I've heard it used interchangeably. And oh, that to me, so you know, like that to me, it's just it. the conflation is really problematic. And you're right. It's this shorthand way of talking negatively about Jews. And I think in this instance specifically, it's our Christian leaders that have an extra responsibility to be communicating this properly from the pulpit. Because as you said, and I include myself in this, most folks haven't had the religious education to be able to like parse all that stuff out. Exactly. Something that I, do you mind if we shift gears a little bit? Cause no, I want to make sure we talk about <laughs> that. I mentioned earlier briefly is the way that many American cr- Christians position Christianity as under attack. Are you coming across this as well? Oh, yes. We are under attack. We are, we are so under attack. marginalized. Yes. And American Christians are just so persecuted and it's not safe to be a loud and proud Christian. I think this is especially happening right now. And a lot of it is flamed by right wing media. It's being used as a tool of the culture wars, I think. Mm-hmm. And I, I think this is probably more of an evangelical tendency to think of Christianity as being at war with the culture or at war with the devil or um, <laughs> at war with secularism. And even if it's not said explicitly, there's an implication that we're also at war with other religions. And this sentiment wasn't part of my mainline Methodist tradition growing up, but I heard it a lot, especially that kind of us versus them mentality. Anytime I was in an interdenominational youth space in mm-hmm. high school or in college, and it was always, I, I don't know if you remember this, it was always this big deal to share your testimony. Oh, You're yeah. so brave for being unashamed of your faith. And the reality of it was there is nothing brave about being openly Christian in a predominantly Christian school or community. <laughs> But we were pumped up to think of ourselves as, like, countercultural and warriors for Jesus or whatever. not ashamed of the gospel. Yeah. And did you ever ever say, if loving the Lord is wrong, I don't want to be right? Did you ever say that? I'm sure I said some version of that. Literally, no one was telling us that loving the Lord was wrong. (laughs) 
Uh, and clearly, so yeah. it is so self-righteous. And if 70% of Americans identify as Christian, then we are absolutely not being persecuted or erased in our public spaces or in our laws and our government. But you know who really is being persecuted and erased? Jews, who make up 2% of our population. So we're, we really need to be challenging this Christian persecution idea whenever we hear it. Because not only is it just not true, it's sucking all the air out of the room and making it harder for folks who are actually facing marginalization to be heard and included. Oh, it's, so, it's so true. And the voices that are talking about Christian persecution also don't view other kinds of Christians as Christian, right? Like, yes, this it true. allows for that full spectrum. Cause I feel like those folks are like mainline Protestants. If you haven't been saved, you're not actually Christian. Yeah. Yep. And we should say this is a white Christian sentiment too. Like this is mostly coming from white evangelical Christian voices is where only white evangelical Christians could make the term Pharisee and conflate it with something about praying in public as hypocrites and then go on to pray publicly. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? It's so absurd. The yeah. logic. There's just a complete lack yeah. of logic. Oh my gosh. Yeah. We could talk about how annoyed we are about us Christian folks all day, but I thought it might be <laughs> helpful to think about some things that even just some small practices or not even small. Some of them are big practices that those of us who do not, who identify as Christian culturally or one way or another could do? What can we do to kind of ensure that we're not reinforcing Christian hegemony and supremacy and maybe start dismantling it? Like, I think there's some actual Mm -hmm. things that we can do. And so I thought Mm -hmm. of just a couple of examples for me that I wanted to share, and they might be helpful to you all. One that I learned in college, kind of the hard way, I had a Jewish professor, was um, it's always more inclusive to say Hebrew Bible and Christian scriptures than Old Testament and New Testament if you're in ah. mixed company. Because oh, the Hebrew okay. Bible is part of the Christian canon, and it's important to respect this long tradition of Hebrew interpretation of these texts, not just viewing uh-huh. them through the lens of Christianity. You know, and I always like to remind people Jesus was was Jewish. So yeah. it's never incorrect to refer to those texts as the Hebrew Bible. So I try to do that in my writing. I try to do that even when I'm in with Christians. Because it's more precise and that way people don't – it's a way of sort of uh, separating out like the Christian dominance and how we talk about the text. So that's one example is you can always say Hebrew, Hebrew Bible. Um, And along those lines, please, please, please don't dismiss the entirety of the the Hebrew scriptures and say Jesus changed all of that. Yeah. Because – it's really, really offensive to only look th- – th- these are rich, ancient texts from lots of different cultures. Yeah. And to say, like, oh, Jesus came and fulfilled all of that is really oversimplified and problematic. And it erases – as you're talking about erasure, it erases mm-hmm. the beauty and the richness of these texts that really deserve our time and attention, not to mention erasing the communities from which the text came. So please don't do yeah. that. Please don't do that. And, okay, on a more practical level, I was thinking it's really easy, especially if you use Google Calendar, and there's probably others, too, to add a calendar to yours that has all the major religious holidays, not not just Christian ones and not just the Jewish ones. I mean, there's – yep, I think there's, like, 200 religious holidays a year or something like that from all the major religions. It's a lot. But Google makes it really easy, so you can just add those in. And when you were talking about Sheila describing how she had to take a test on a high holiday, you know – 
it's not always practical to give off everybody's holidays to them all the time, right? If there's 200. Mm-hmm. But I was thinking about Matt's old workplace. They, they got floating holidays. So they had, I think, five days that did not count towards their paid time off that they could use at any time throughout the year. Oh, that's great. And that way it's no matter what your tradition is, you can use those and you're not feeling penalized, right, and taking your vacation time. Yep. So that might be something that you can implement in your workplace or talk about, because I think that those are the kinds of practices. It's not ideal, right? Ideally, everybody would have every holiday off, but it's a way to sort of recognize that there are lots of people with different traditions who are in community with each other um, yeah. and sort of build that understanding around around those differences. Those are all really good. And I love how you really focused on practical things that you can start to change and start to do tomorrow, today. And I don't really have anything to add other than, uh, for me, this is a big one, get to know some Jewish people, you know, and not in a tokenizing way. Like, don't just show up at a synagogue. Um, Not that I think folks would do that. But but if you go to church, you can absolutely talk to your pastor about doing an interfaith service or a book club or even a potluck and make some new friends that way. And I'll share this resource, the Faith Matters Network, who we've talked about on the show a lot. They have a great project called the People's Supper, which you can find on their website. And it's literally a like curriculum um, that can help you plan a gathering where folks from different faith traditions can come together over a meal and just get to know each other. And it's very casual. It doesn't have to be scary, you know. And if there's a synagogue in your area, I do want to lift this up. Just know that the Jewish community in your area is probably dealing with heightened security and anxiety and fear due to the rise in anti-Semitic violence that we talked about in our last episode with Sheila. So asking them how your church can support them could be a really powerful show of friendship. Mm -hmm. And, you know, because social justice is such an important part of Judaism, I've met a lot of Jewish people through participating in activism. Sheila even said on our last episode, you don't have to be Jewish to connect with the National Council of Jewish Women. Um, so those are some ways that you can break out of your comfort zone a little bit and and meet some new people. And I think white Christians especially are sometimes afraid of getting out of our comfort zones, which when you think about it, it really makes sense when all of our country is our comfort zone. We're very used to our beliefs and our needs and opinions and our feelings and our comfort being catered to. And this is a shame because you can't grow inside your comfort zone, you know? And in this way, Christian hegemony, Christian supremacy, much like patriarchy and white supremacy, it hurts us all. So for folks who might feel nervous, I'll say... In my experience, the more I ventured beyond the Christianity of my childhood, the more I learned from folks who are different from me, the richer my spiritual life has become. Mm. So I'll just offer that to folks who are trying to, to really think of ways that they can start to dismantle some of the supremacy in themselves. It's easy to think that we're doing it for others, but we really we benefit ourselves when we dismantle these systems of oppression and hierarchy. We become fuller humans, too. Absolutely. Maybe we can also include some people we like to follow who might be just good yes. people to help us learn about 
the ways that we inadvertently reinforce these things. One one person in particular who I just adore and you might have worked with at some point is Rabbi Danya Ruttenberg. She's amazing. She's on she's on Twitter and she's a, has a great account. She often talks about these kinds of nuances. So we'll make sure to add that too. Um, Cause that might be a good way to start to is just start listening to some of these voices who are talking about this stuff. Yes, absolutely. So we'll put some of that in our show notes and maybe um, do an Instagram story that links to some accounts that we think might be good to follow. We will, we will work on that. Yeah. And that's it for this episode. This was a great conversation and yeah. looking forward to the next one. We're going to have our friend. Good colleague and past guest, Reverend yes. Dr. Carrie Jackson, on to talk about grieving, which is something we've wanted to talk about for quite a while and something that feels relevant all the time, but especially in yes. these moments. Yes. All right, friend. I'll talk to you then. Talk to you then. Thanks for listening. You can find us on our website, kindredspodcast.com. That's kindreds with an S. Or you can send us an email at team at kindredspodcast.com. You can also follow me, Katie, on Twitter at Katie Zay. That's Katie with an E-Y-Z-E-H. Please send us your thoughts, ideas, and questions. We'd love to hear from you. 